1: Hey, it's Kevin Monroe, and it's my pleasure of welcoming you back or welcoming you to the Higher Purpose podcast for the very first time, whatever applies to you. This is episode 96, and I am so elated to have you join me today. It's a fascinating conversation that gets into the intersection of higher purpose and employee experience or what some people call employee engagement. Today, we're joined by Ben Witter. He's known as Mr. Employee Experience. Ben has a unique perspective that he's gained through the years by having worked over in eight different countries, gaining insights from a variety of countries and cultures that have informed his unique point of view about employee experience. Ben currently resides outside of London, and in just a few weeks, he's releasing his first book, Employee Experience. But join us now for this lively conversation. Hey, what a joy to welcome Ben Witter to the Higher Purpose Podcast today. So Ben, where are you joining us from today?
2: Today, I am in sunny Cheshire in England.
1: Okay, and it is a sunny day there, right?
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's beautiful. Summer died early here. I think uh, blue sky, sunshine, a few clouds, but generally the very, very nice.
1: Awesome. Hey, I'm so delighted to have you join us today. And Ben, I always start by asking this, Of every guest. What's something that you're grateful for in this moment? We're recording this on a Monday. So, on a Monday, what's something you're grateful for?
2: Well, I think I've already covered this already. I think I'm grateful for the weather. (laughs) (laughs) This is England. We're still getting used to these warm summers, (laughs) early summers at that. That's a good question. I think, what am I grateful for right now? I think for me, I think it's opportunity. I think that's the big thing I'm grateful for right now. Lots of opportunities. To talk and share the message of employee experience with different people, different audiences around the world. We did something in London last week where I started talking about my book for the first time, and uh, it's my first book, so this was the first public occasion where I started to talk about one of the key concepts. And I thought I'm grateful to have the platform that I can talk to people because that's a privilege in itself. But the response was also very good, so. I'm grateful for that.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, that's all to be grateful for.
2: Well, you put out a book. You don't know how the response is going to go. But when people start to respond well to your ideas, I think it's a good sign.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Like I said, I want to dig into that in a few minutes. But first, this is the Higher Purpose podcast. And I know that purpose is important to you in your journey. And so I want to ask, how has purpose? how is purpose playing out in your work at the World Employee Experience Institute?
2: Well, for me, it was really about this is what defines reason for being and why we came into existence. So I charted a path which was non-linear. It was very much all over the place in terms of my career. Different challenges, different things that fascinated me, that I've become slightly obsessed with. But it's all been around the experience of work and how we can create organizations where humans can genuinely thrive both inside and outside of work. So I think that's connected my career, and it's been a fundamental part of my my life so far. And that's been, you know, that connects my charity initiatives and activity as well, and the things I do offline that are not public and visible. Mm. So that the whole purpose thing is very very important to me. But I think it goes deeper in terms of it's it's very much about searching for truth. Mm. There's a lot of noise and fake news around at the moment, and for me, it's been a life. Based on experience and based on trying to find my truth and connect with it, Mm -hmm. share it, and continually learn from it as well.
1: Okay. Two questions there. One, how do you articulate your purpose now? Because I've seen that you have a pretty clear way to articulate it.
2: Yeah, so for me, it's really about creating exceptional experiences for people in that side of work. So my purpose is to help people define design and deliver those within the economy.
1: So really a catalyst for the experience. Okay. And then your path to this. I'm curious about this. And I ask people all the time, has their path to purpose been more zigzag or straight line? And Ben, you're in good company of all the folks I've interviewed or or had conversations with here on the podcast. Only one has said they had a straight line. Everybody else has followed the zigzag path. But when you started talking about experience, I wonder, did you start having being on the receiving end of very good experience or not so good experience as an employee?
2: And that's a great question. I mean, from 14 is when I started work part-time working in the hospitality industry. And I remember when I was 14, I had two different experiences at two different kind of restaurant, pub-type places, bar-type places. One was really good. One was really bad. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of uh, hammered on the message that you have very different experiences based on where you go, the context, the leadership, the people who are on the place, run the place. From there, I've had very much a collection of experiences. I travelled around the world working in warehouses and working on farms. I worked on a carnival, end up on television in Australia once. So that was quite cool.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I've done a little bit of everything, but I think it's shaped where I am now in terms of that early understanding about how important it is to have a good experience in work. But I've learned from the worst, I've got to say. I think that's been a big element and it's why I am so kind of obsessed about making very toxic workplaces and turn them into something positive. Because to be on the receiving end of that and have some experiences where they've not been too great, I think it does untold damage to some of the things that we really care about, really.
1: Mm. Okay, so let's go back. 14 years old, you had two very different experiences. What do you remember? And first off, at that point in time, we weren't calling them experiences, I don't think. But what do you remember from the good experience? And how do you contrast that with the one that was bad? And because kind of extremes or opposites, what was so different to you? And what were the thoughts you were having even at that point in life?
2: Well, to take that early example, I think the major difference was The way you felt when you walked in Mm. to the organisations, so we'll turn them organisations. So I walked into one on a Friday night, and you know you didn't really feel like you belonged there. And it was uh, evident through the way they treated you. It was evident through the way the leadership, the the honour was kind of dealing with people. Contrast that with another experience on a different day. And it felt more like a family atmosphere, people looking after each other, you know, asking basic things like, you know, how are you? <laughs> are you doing okay? Having a laugh, having some jokes, you know, getting well rewarded for what you did as well and recognized and, recognize and appreciated. So all those basic components and ingredients of a great experience in work were, were there. It was you know, it was very clear.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, like you, my first experiences were in the hospitality industry, and I didn't have a good experience. I had some fun every once in a while, but overall it was bad. But I remember the group trying to recruit me into their management training program. And Ben, my experience was really, you think this is what I want to do with my life? Because they were pretty miserable people that I saw. And I'm thinking they were not good advertisements or advertisements, as you would say, for the industry, right? It was like these were the poster children of what not to do in the hospitality industry because there was a lot of bickering, a lot of just rude behavior that wouldn't even be tolerated today in today's world because of, you know, just some of the, fortunately, improvements that we've had. Now, The other thing you said, you've worked all over the world or in many parts of the world. So I love this, that you have a very unique perspective of observing employee experience. And that's kind of on the receiving end as an employee. But now you've worked around the world as a consultant in dozens of countries, different continents, cultures. So that's a unique vantage point. So I'd love to ask, what are some of the similarities you've seen that are consistent across companies, cultures, and even countries?
2: I think the first one is that people are human wherever you go, <laughs> if you're lucky. We're all human, and I think we respond to similar things in similar ways. I think that's one thing. So I've worked and lived in eight countries on a long-term basis, Australia, Germany, France, Spain, China, I was there in near Shanghai for three years. And what makes us human rarely changes we do create crave very similar things from our experience in life so I think that's one thing that doesn't change the way we arrive at recognition the way we do our celebrations the way we personalize our experience the way the culture develops around us as well the national culture and the way that we're conditioned and we're brought up I think informs our experience as well so I think there's a lot going on but I think it's it's very much a case of you will have a very local experience wherever you go. And I think that leads to a strong conclusion that context is very important. So looking at the local context, customs, traditions, practices, I think if you arrive there as a consultant and say, okay, we need to change this because it doesn't suit the Western way of doing things, then we're going to end up in a lot of trouble. (laughs) In China, a lot of Western multinationals have been literally smashed to pieces in the last few years because they haven't, adapted to the local conditions. One of my favorite examples is Max & Spencer's, which is actually one of my favorite shops. So It was over there. And they opened 25 branches, but they totally missed the customer experience on the Chinese side and the employee experience on the human side as well. Hmm. I think they've retreated and that's closed down, which was a great shame for me in Shanghai. <laughs> a lot of English people were not very happy about that one. So I think it's learning the lessons of the context and actually not coming in as the saviour or with any one method or ideology. It's a case of what can we bring together to make the whole better and stronger and more connected. I think mean, that's what I've learned you know, multiple times around these different locations. Yeah. And uh, as an individual, I think it's a case of you know making sure that you're in the right mindset, which is, I think, a combination of global and local to deal with this to move forward and, and to be pragmatic
1: and flexible way you can as well. So what do you do to observe and understand and just take it in for a moment rather than, I think it's easy for a lot of consultants to come in and kind of have their prescription pad. Oh, here's what you need to do. And as you say that that doesn't work. So what's different? How do you put yourself in an observer's mode?
2: Well, me, I tend to live my life slightly differently, and there's probably some things I'll share in my second book, (laughs) but not the first book, because I tend to immerse myself in the experience. So in China, for example, I was there for three years, and I would go and experience life as a local, you know, do what they do, experience some of the things that they go through. And that's fascinating, because you do have that perspective, and it makes it. Interesting in terms of how you develop things. So i gonna give you an example of that. There was team development weekends, which is a Chinese customer practice. So once a year, most organizations, they'll take all their employees on a kind of weekend away to do some team bonding and team building. So I used to kind of jump into that with uh, both feet. And on a bus of, say, 50 people, there'll be me, <laughs> the only lao It was interesting to see the way the majority reacted to the minority. And they would try to cater for my needs, as opposed to me just kind of adapting uh, to those, which I thought was really interesting. But again, language wasn't a barrier. It was humans. We were looking after each other. People would come and translate for me where I needed it and various other things. So I think community, you know, that's massively important. So creating some form of community wherever you are helps from an observational perspective. It helps you identify the big things that are most important and causing great pain, but also the great things that perhaps we underrate because we're not from that context.
1: Hmm. So at what point did you start recognizing the the commonness of humanity and humans across cultures?
2: Uh, I think for me, it was relatively early. So when I finished my first degree after university, I went traveling straight away, so... I was living in Spain for six months, then I went to Japan for a year, and then I was elsewhere. Uh, But for me, it was a case of, yeah, people are different, but the humanity remains very much the same, in that we're emotional creatures, we're experiencing the world through our senses. I think that was quite early on. Very much helped me develop my views quite early in my career, I've got to say. But when I came back after traveling, so in my mid-20s, I think it changed the way I saw organizations too, so I was working in a, a pharmaceutical company in the h r team, and I could see the way I looked at things was somewhat different to the way people
1: um, in those roles were looking at things. say was, more about that for example, give us an example if you will.
2: well, for me, I was about human centricity, and that 's what has followed me through my career and Sometimes I would be quite forceful around it in terms of I would want to fix issues that were getting in the way of creating good things for for people within work. So when you work in a HR team, that's not necessarily the case. They don't want to fix what's getting in the way of employees, although they certainly didn't back then. It was a case of employees, sometimes they're a little bit like numbers in the machine or cogs. Right. Human centricity, I don't think, even some of the top employers was not, massively evident so it wasn't a case of let's fix things as fast as we can and get you back on track to where you need to be it was a case of well bureaucracy handbooks policies processes procedures
1: compliance getting the people to comply right
2: yeah that compliance and enforcement mentality of that function i think it's improved significantly in the last few years i've got to say but still in a large part of the economy that function in particular is not getting the love, potentially in some cases, deserves. Right. You know, certainly, I think there's more to be done there.
1: So, was there an event or a series of events that led you to launch the World Employee Experience Institute? How did that come about?
2: I think it's a great story because we were talking about employee experience back in, say, 2014 and uh, 2015. So, we started on the project to look at what the employee experience was for international organizations in Asia. So we did a big research project over a three-year period. Now, this has been presented at academic conferences and in journals and various, but it was based on me as a practitioner coming in and saying, okay, what's massively important to our people? So I started asking very deliberate questions to our people. So we co-created some of the big things that they wanted to look at, as you would expect from someone who does employee experience. Actually, yeah, I went out, we got together lots of people in a room, and we said, how do we really significantly improve things within your experience so we came up with a list and then because i had access to a business school and some world-class academics i then brought them into the project and said based on what employees are telling us what are the frameworks and what's the academic literature what's the most powerful stuff out there within academia that we can use to create our own metric and benchmark so we went ahead and did that and brought in some thought leadership from the us from a colleague um, He was global director at Coca-Cola at the time. And we kind of crunched all this together and created our own metric for the employee experience. And then we started doing some research around it and looking at the results. And it was incredible to look at these really well proven, really deep academic measures, and then showing really how closely they correlate to what the experts are saying, which the real experts are employees. So that was a light bulb moment, the way that project came together. And at the time, I was also writing more publicly. But my first article, my first ever article to articulate this, I used a case study on Airbnb, and it kind of blew up quite quickly and unexpectedly, because I didn't have that many connections at the time. But it's, it went on to amass one million views worldwide. It's been picked up by major magazines and Thompson Reuters and Deloitte University Press, and everyone's kind of had a look at it. So that was a catalyst, and that kind of changed everything. So the direction for us after that was to really expand on this and build something around it, which we oh. did. Hmm.
1: So what were one of those insights that you saw if we were to do – concentric circles or Venn diagram of the world of the experts, the employees, and the world of academia, what was there at the intersection that people were missing perhaps before? And that all of a sudden, it was that light bulb moment for you. For me, it was a
2: relationship at the center, really. So if you look at more traditional concept like psychological contract, there's always been this implicit and explicit contract with employees and employers. So on one hand, the employer will get this, on the other hand, the employee will get this. Now, I've been fascinated by the psychological contract, and there's so much about that relationship that's not written down in the policy document. It's you know, it's how you get recognition, it's how you're celebrated, it's how the employees help you grow and learn and thrive within not just work but life, all these unwritten things within that deal, if you like, or that relationship. So I think where my thinking started was around that. So I wanted to create a really strong, cohesive and connected relationship between employees and the employer. And anything getting in the way of that should be looked at, explored, removed, Hmm. improved, whatever you need to do. So focusing on the holistic employee experience through that piece of research was seen as the way to do it because employees, academics, researchers, we were all saying the same thing. It's the experience that we deliver to our customers, clients that really has predominantly mattered the most up until this point. But if it really does matter the most, then we have to develop the employee experience first.
1: Yeah. Years ago when I started getting involved in customer experience world, I, I was dumbfounded and baffled that people weren't seeing that connection, Ben. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. It's right? uh- I mean- it takes a long time to arrive at some of these simple things, I'm gonna say.
1: <laughs> yeah, but if the employee experience is bad, it's nearly impossible for the customer experience to be any different. But there seems so much focus on, you know, the customer experience. And so when I go into and I see it so much in hospitality, right? Especially traveling. In the moment I have one of those wonderful experiences, I'm wanting to peel back the onion. And find out what's happening so vibrantly in the employee experience. Because there has to be something going on there if customer experience is this great.
2: That sounds like a passage in my book. Okay. The exact word for words. So I'll tell you this one. So uh went to a restaurant in Estonia. It had something like, you know, it was unbelievable. 25,000 five-star reviews. I'm like... This is just remarkable. So the hypothesis, I took an academic colleague so we could have a look at this. And I said, there is no chance whatsoever on this earth that they will have a poor employee experience. And it will be evident. As soon as we sit down at the table and we ask a question, it will be evident. It will be written all over the face and the skin tonality will change. The voice will become more vibrant. They'll be more energetic. It'll all be evident when we ask them what type of place it is to work there. And we'll be in no doubt whatsoever. So we, we asked the question. We were having a look around this organization. And I got the opportunity to speak to some staff members. And I said, tell us about your employee experience. And the first comment, one of the waiters said, it's the best experience I've ever had. Hmm. This is what I've worked all over town. I've worked in all these restaurants next door that are fighting to get people in the door. This is the best place I've ever worked. And then we went in to explore why that was. And he came back to the 14-year-old restaurant example. They walked in there and they felt like they belonged. And I think that's very special
1: when you're out of that. Okay, so let's talk about that because several times here, you've used words of humanity, humans first. And it was my work and my involvement with the humans first movement that even allowed you and I to meet. Yeah, yeah, sure. So Ben, when you look at that, and you've used the word belonging, the essence of humanity that you've seen across countries, across continents, across cultures, what are those basic elements of humanity? Belonging is top of the list or pretty high up there? Absolutely.
2: And this is why, you know, community has been such a strong part of my life, because if you don't have a community, it's very difficult to create a sense of belonging. You know, corporations can't just put on a strategy paper, oh, we're going to create belonging now. (laughs) We're doing that this quarter. It doesn't work like that. (laughs) You have to build something that people believe in and something has to unite the people within the organization in order for them to feel that sense of belonging. It's not about perks. It's not about ping pong tables and all the rest of it. It's about something deeper that resonates with our inner self. So this... You know, we're all put on the planet for a a number of years. It's how you treat each other. It's how you look after each other. It's how you respect one another. So I think that comes down to humanity. And I think that's why you have to protect it within the context of a company. Because if you don't have that, I can't see how you're going to do
1: any well. So you've traveled around the world in a variety of cultures. And I'm sure, well, let me ask it this way. How long does it take you to get a general feel for whether or where employee experience and customer experience fit on a continual?
2: This is a great question. And we discussed this last week because I think I was challenged. You know, Mr. Employee Experience and all this. I leave myself wide open to challenge. But I did it. The question was, tell me about my organization based on a very short period of a visit. And I started talking and giving this information back to a, a management team. And the response was, yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) So it doesn't take long at all.
1: How long had your experience been there? Literally a few hours. Yeah.
2: (laughs) A few hours, a few different interactions, and that was it. Game over. We could I could go back with a degree of confidence and say, this is what I believe to be true about your particular organization. Now, if you agree with this, tell me you agree. If you don't, then I've obviously got it wrong and we can learn from that. (laughs) But the unanimous feedback was spot on. And that was based on just a few interactions and a few hours of experience in the organization. I believe it doesn't take too much. You don't really have to do a survey sometimes. You can just walk in, talk to some people at the water cooler or go into the
1: kitchens, go and ask them a few questions, and you'll find out very quickly what's going on. Right. I agree. I've had that. And I think of an organization that their headquarters is here. And I walked into the organization and just the encounter I had with what they called the CEO of the lobby. <laughs> That's what they called this woman. She was the CEO of the lobby. And having that experience with her told me so much. And then when I sat down with the senior vice president of the company, he said, what do you wanna talk about? I said, how you get that to happen? You know, Because that was quite remarkable. And that was characteristic of the organization throughout. So I'm with you. Now, you may get an anomaly that's something that's really kind of skewed one way or the other, but two or three encounters and you have a pretty good feel.
2: Yeah. And so much so you want to defend it and you want to help the brand uphold it as well. Yeah. So so I don't know if you've ever been to one of the best customer experience organizations in the world and you encounter an experience that doesn't hit the mark. You kind of take it personally. You're like... But what I know to be true about your brand is that you're world class. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's one experience here that doesn't match that. As a customer or consumer, you're like, well, I want to give you feedback to help you because <laughs> you kind of get into a defensive position. You want this. Oh, I didn't, I didn't expect that. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So we've become quite emotional. I ran a session on customer experience a couple of years ago. And I said, tell me what your favorite brand is, your best brand experience. And a lady put her hand up and she gave this beautiful Churchillian speech about this brand. And then I said, okay, now, group, tell me your worst brand experience. And the lady sat next to her, put her hand up and said the exact same brand. Wow, wow. And she kind of counter-argued with as much Churchillian vigor as she could in terms of why it was just such a terrible, terrible organization. Hmm. But that, again, it just reiterates time and time again the power of our, our individual experiences and the impact they have. These people were giving stories from like, Decades
1: previous. I'm so, glad you said that. That is something that I've talked about before, is the long tail effect mm-hmm. of either really good or really bad experience. People are talking about it years later. If mm-hmm. you were to ask me one of the most formative experiences, it now goes back seven or eight years with a hotel. That it started as a bad experience. Something didn't go so well. The way they corrected it and the things that happened after that, I was so blown away that I've been a champion of that brand (laughs) for eight years now, Ben, right? The long tail.
2: Yeah, exactly. And for employees, I think it's exactly the same, magnified by 10.
1: Hmm. Hmm.
2: Because we have such a deeply, sometimes dependent relationship on our employers. But it's deeply personal. It's deeply emotional.
1: You
2: know, for the book, when I was interviewing people, the amount of people who turned around said, I would literally run through walls for this employer. And they weren't even employed there anymore. (laughs) I thought it was was staggering.
1: So I do leadership work. And often I ask people to think about the leader that's had the greatest influence on them. And then there are times I'll turn around and ask, how long ago was that that you worked for them? And it's 15, 20 years, but yeah, they still feel that way about that leader 20 years later. A lady said recently, if he called me at 2 a.m. and said, I need this, I'd say, when do I need to be there? You know, 2 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) Get up and say, I'm there because it was that kind of experience. So, Ben, uh, tell us, what's the name of the book that's coming out?
2: I think people can guess that by now. It's Employee Experience. (laughs) (laughs) That's about keep it short and simple. So, it's Employee Experience.
1: Okay. So through your work, I'm pretty sure you have. I don't know this yet. I haven't read the book. The book's not out. Have you identified factors that are vital to the success and or failure of employee experience endeavors or, you know, initiatives that companies launch?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, again, I present a different lens for employee experience in the book, and that kind of details in some depth the evidence I've been exposed to what some of these organizations are really focused on. Not this glossy stuff, but actually, what are the fundamental things that, where if we make some marginal gains or some significant leaps, if you like, in terms of progress, that will really start to get you on the right path for?
1: Can you give us one now? What I'll talk about
2: is something at the centre of the model, because I think it's really appropriate given your podcast, and we've already dipped into this topic anyway. So I think right at the centre, there is this unbelievable, unwavering belief. In what the business is actually doing. So, partially, it's about the why, but only partially, because that's not enough. It's okay to, that can get you starting to think about employee experience, but the why is not enough. What complements the why is the how, so the mission and the values of the organization. Now, we could say, you know, organizational culture, we've been doing this for years, you know, purpose, values, mission. But the difference this time, is the way that they're approached within the holistic employee experience. So businesses now uh, actually mean what they say and they're translating it throughout everything they do within the employee experience and the customer experience as well. So this becomes the truth. So the truth of the organization, and as we were discussing earlier, you'll very, very quickly find out if it's a lie or not. Yeah. You'll find the truth instantly when you walk into an organization. Almost instantly, if they really do
1: believe in what they're saying, and I think the tolerance or the lack of tolerance now, when you find out it's a lie, yes, when you've heard yeah. the hype and you went in expecting this, and then you realize, oh no, no, that was just some kind of marketing spin.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's like beautiful. Back, one of the people I interviewed for the book, I said, "Well, this looks like a fantastic employee experience," and they turn around and just looked at me and. Uh, covered the microphone a little bit and and said it's very good marketing and that's all you need but if you have enough of those that are saying that then everything you do around employee experience is going to be diluted as a result so I think you've got to be true and given the level of attention workplaces are getting on social media in the press and fake news and all the rest of it misinformation (laughs) we live in a very noisy world but I think only the truth is going to be able to cut through some of that you can't hide anymore
1: Hmm.
2: So organizations will stand and fall on the quality of the experience they offer to the employees and the customers.
1: So Ben, I'm curious about this. Being Mr. Employee Experience, can we call them gimmicks? That <laughs> you can try to me the biggest thing is folks believing there's a one size fits all solution for employee experience. So, you know, we read what Google's done or whoever that company is, and we just want to import that here. And if we can only do what they do, that's going to solve our problem. Talk about your experiences with the gimmicks.
2: I mean, I think we've seen everything now. We've seen a lot. It depends. I think if they're not connected to your truth and they literally are just things to draw attention to you and get yourself in the news or get some cheap PR, then I think they are gimmicks. If they're not, then I think they become meaningful experiences that are connected and can amplify your truth. So, you know, whether it's ping pong tables, foosball tables, uh, slides, uh, you know, holidays away, or bonuses that uh, built on something extravagant, or whatever it may be. I think if it sits outside of your truth and it's just done for the wrong reasons, then it's a gimmick, it's not gonna work. And employers will see through it. Some of the best ones I've seen are the ones that are really connected to that purpose, that mission. And I don't think the gimmicks, I think it's an extension of this community feeling. So there's a lot more uh, charitable and social impact campaigns that we're seeing connected to our workplaces. And that could create all manner of things, uh, barbecues and family days and festivals and beach parties and all these things. Whereas if you looked at them in isolation, you would say, "Okay, yeah." but actually in the context of the whole, they make a whole lot of sense. So you see a lot of that now. But I think the difference is how well they're connected.
1: So do you have a story of an organization that you respect and you've watched them find their truth and find the employee experience approach that's legitimate expression of their truth? It may be corny to other people, but it's authentic to them and then it becomes real. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it it tends, there's a lot of companies that start from a perspective of, OK, we've got this new generation of leader coming in and they're saying they've worked in some of these really poor workplaces and we don't want any of that anymore. We're going to create a type of organization where we want to you know, have a spring in our step when we walk to work. So I think those examples, you know, small startup, high growth mm-hmm. in the UK, if you look at the Fast Track 100, the top growing companies in the UK, they all represent a version of that because they just won't stand for any nonsense. And they're very in your face with it. So companies like uh, BrewDog in Scotland, a microbrewery company, one of their gimmicks, if it was in isolation or another company, was Paternity leave, where they give employees who've got a new dog a week or two weeks off to welcome the new dog into their family. Maybe he did that somewhere else. Maybe it doesn't land as well, but they're at BrewDog. It's a key part of their truth and their brand, so it works beautifully. Well, that's the type of connection. Is a that's a good example of that. You know, other workplaces are bringing in dogs and pets and goldfish and whatnot. You know, if employees are saying that that would make our experience better, then okay, good.
1: <laughs> but what's the conversation with executives, leaders, to help them discover what's their truth, and then what becomes legitimate expression versus gimmicks?
2: Well, that goes back to, yeah, it goes back to the long and short of it, is that that purpose and the overarching mission of the business. But at that point, that is what creates the tension in terms of what do they publicly say and what do they privately believe? Hmm. Because you may have a company that they want to change the world of this and do this and transform this, but at the end of the day, they want to sell the business in five to 10 years and exit. Maybe not as compelling as it could be, but if the employees no and understand this is our mission and this is the purpose behind the mission and these are the values that are going to get us there, I think that's better than trying to deceive people. And I don't think that works too well. So I, I like that. So that getting much deeper and closer to the real truth of your business, what are you really in business for? What's the mission that's going to organize you effectively to deliver on that purpose? And then making sure you, you've got really deep-rooted values to help you navigate that path.
1: I love it. I love it. That's just the journey.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When you find a company on that journey, or when I find one, I just want to help them, right?
2: You just want to hold you on them. that, you know, just let me get involved in
1: this. Exactly. Because what you said earlier, you want to see companies like that succeed. Yes. And then when you experience something Okay, there are no perfect companies, and every once in a while, even despite our best efforts, something falls short. (laughs) But that's the moment when they really get to step up and shine and say, well, gosh, we didn't live up to our expectations. So how do we make that right? And how do we make sure we don't deliver that way again versus let's sweep that under the carpet and hope nobody finds out?
2: Yeah, absolutely it's so important because it's what we know to be true about the human experience. We're here, as we said, for a short period of time, and we're here to make as much of an impact as we possibly can. Hmm. Now, impact, really, it's not about uh, the numbers in your bank balance. It's about the impact that you have on people and the legacy you create long after you've left, perhaps. So I think that's a better place to focus. But we've got to remember, as we're traveling through life as well within organizations, we're trying to find our own personal truth as well. And some don't, some it takes a long time to find that purpose. Me, it took me till I was maybe 25 to find my real purpose in life, which was to help people. And from there, being able to build a decent career from that. It wasn't easy to get there. I had to go through some really crappy experiences first. So I think, yeah, organizations are not perfect, but they reflect the humanity within their walls. We're not perfect either. (laughs) <laughs> so we can't expect our organizations to be fair but it's how we respond, it's how we grow through adversity and challenges even the best in the world as you say, they'll be hammered in the press and media and vilified for a period of time it's like you say, it's how you respond to that hmm.
1: Hmm. So Ben, what brings you joy in your work at this season of life? I think for me, it's, it's seeing the impact you have when you make a difference to people directly
2: I think that's always pretty good whether it's an email or a message on LinkedIn or uh, someone from somewhere would just come out and say, look, what you're doing makes an impact on my life. I want to build more of those moments. That's what I'm trying to do with the book.
1: Well, let's go back to that experience last week when you first talked about the book publicly for the first time. What was it about that encounter, Ben, that, you know, was just so gratifying? And I don't mean in the ego building way, but in this producing joy.
2: That one in particular, I think I've created... In the book and what I think is a new model for employee experience it's a new way of looking at things and to share that I've been sharing it with clients initially just getting some feedback and then to share it in front of four or five hundred people and to see the response was really quite something so I had lots of emails after and lots of people coming to me saying that's it mm. that's great that was very good I thought the impact of that, that idea in particular has and this um, this connection to the truth as well because it's something I've connected with quite strongly throughout my life. This life is about searching for truth. It's about searching for meaning. So to connect that in a deeper way to my work based on the evidence I've seen and then to watch the reactions, was that was pretty good.
1: Awesome. Hey, maybe you'll come back. Maybe we'll do another conversation soon when once the book is out and I get an opportunity to read the book. Maybe we can do a deep dive. Yeah, I'd be able to do that. That'd be great. Okay. So, Ben, what is it that would bring this conversation to a fitting close and allow us to put a bow on it for those listening, for you listening. What would you like to say to them about the employee experience journey?
2: The first thing I would say is enjoy it. The ups and the downs, I think they're there to challenges, but not define us per se. So I think your life philosophy is to go through and really focus on delivering value to humans and being human centric and making a difference to people, and enjoying it as you go, I don't think you go far wrong with that approach to be honest,
1: I agree. And for folks that hear this and want to go deeper with you, learn more, where do we direct them, Ben?
2: They can go to LinkedIn, uh, connect with me, follow me on there, uh, BenWitzer.com, or with the, the community at uh, worldeeinstitute.com. M- Those are the, the main channels for me. Twitter, occasionally. But I'm not too reliable on that one just yet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Ben, what a delight. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for sharing. I love the focus on humanity and just, you know, if that's the North Star you're shooting for, you'll get there. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Hey, Ben, thanks for joining. What a delight. And how fun it was to discover that while our journeys have been considerably different, they are amazingly similar. And I believe the truth of that applies to you and me as well. If you and me were to sit down and to compare our experiences, we'd find so many similarities because at the heart of it, we're humans. And so much of what we desire, what we encounter, what we experience is common to all of us. And I love it that employee experience is truly human experience because we're humans first. If you know me, you know that I loved when Ben said that employee experience is, after all, it's about the relationship. Because for me, it's all about relationships. Relationships are primary. All else is derivative. So at the root, everything is about relationships or the lack thereof. So this employee experience, employee engagement, it's fundamentally about relationships and humanity because we all have a longing for belonging and belonging exists in community. You can't manufacture. Of course, you know, I was elated to explore Ben's understanding that to experience In employee experience, companies really need to have an unwavering belief about the why of their business and the how they go about pursuing their why. Together, those two elements really comprise a company's truth. And that whatever you do to give authentic, a legitimate expression of your truth is authentic and it's not a gimmick. Even If it might seem corny to those who are on the outside that don't understand your culture, it's authentic to you. And then likewise, it can be a gimmick if you're just copying what someone else is doing, but it's not an authentic expression of who you are, what's your why, and how you're pursuing it. If there's something you've heard on today's conversation or any other conversation here on the Higher Purpose Podcast that you'd like to share or explore with me, you know you can do that. Just contact me by email, kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com, or you can pick up the phone and call me, 678-744-5111. Hey, until we connect next week, which is going to be another enlightening and exciting conversation, I invite you to live, love, and lead with purpose.
0: Do you have a high-stakes initiative that is stuck, stalled out, or stymied, and you're not sure what to do now and how to forge a path forward? The situation is not as grim as you think it is. We can help. Contact Kevin to explore how a winning conversation may be exactly what you need to break the gridlock, unite your team in purpose, and accelerate traction. Call 678-744-5111 or email Kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com.